0: Start the recording. Yes? Okay. Um, Turn to 1 Kings chapter 15. We are starting the book of 2 Samuel, but I am going to start in 1 Kings chapter 15. And if you see on your handout, there are the vital... Hey, Stephen. All right. There are the vital statistics for the book of 2 Samuel... Um, 24 chapters, 695 verses, 20,600 words. Written approximately 1056 B.C. to 1017 B.C. The author is not clear. Uh, A lot of guys that I would trust say, it, you know, maybe Samuel and Gad and Nathan perhaps, like some of those prophets. So I'm not going to take a hard line on that. Easy way to remember your books of Samuel, right? First Samuel is Saul to David. Second Samuel is just David. I mean, that's really the, the gist of, of the book. Second Samuel is a history of the kingship of, of David. And, and just so you know, if you want to add to your understanding, uh, outside of Jesus Christ, there is more said about David than any other figure in the Bible. I mean, there's a lot said about Joseph. There's a lot said about Daniel. Joseph has a very long narrative, like there's a big chunk, right? Genesis 37 to 50 is a long, like, chunk about uh, about Joseph. But David is all over the place. He's in the Psalms. He's in 1 Samuel. He's in 2 Samuel. He's in 1 Kings. Like, he's mentioned all over the place. He's mentioned in Ezekiel about coming back in the millennium. So David is all over the place, and David really represents for us If you want to think about David as as a type and a figure and and why um, he represents so much about us is because his life is really a great preview of our lives as believers, right? Who we are, who we will be, and who we should be. You say, how? Well, David starts, right? He starts as a shepherd boy, right? He starts as a relative nobody. He starts in obscurity He starts small, he starts weak, young and ruddy. Nobody thought anything of him. He was small, he was despised. But you know what he was? He was faithful, amen? David was faithful to keep his father's flock. He was faithful to protect them. And you know what, guys? Down here, that's how you are. (laughs) You don't have much to take care of. You just have to be faithful over a few little things. But God says, you're small, you're despised, you're as the off-scouring of the world, But you know what? God's got His eye on you because He doesn't look on the outward. He looks on the heart and He looks at that small, despised, weak thing the world looks upon called His church, His bride. And all He's looking for is a little bit of faithfulness. You know what David becomes? He becomes what you become. He becomes a king. (laughs) That's who you're going to become. You're supposed to become a king. You are destined to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So David starts where you start, small, despised, but faithful. He ends up where you're supposed to end up, with a crown ruling and reigning. And David, along the way, right? Along the way, oh, he's a lot like us. He makes a lot of mistakes. Not a lot. He made some bad ones. But you know what? We all make mistakes. Amen? We all trip up. We all fall into sin. But you know what David did? He had a heart for God. He received correction, and he never quit. He just kept on going. He, he, when he had to repent, he repented. When he had to fix something, he fixed it. When he had to take the blame, he took the blame. And he's a great example, not only of a shepherd, not only of a king, but he's a great example of what to do when you mess up in front of God. And he just kept on going, and David is a great picture. And if you look on your sheet, the key phrase, the key phrase that pops up in the book of 2 Samuel is, Before the Lord, before the Lord. Um, because the Lord's watching. No matter where you are in life, whether you're at the beginning, whether you're at the ending, when you're on the top, when you're on the bottom, the Lord is always watching. Everything you do is before the Lord. And as you see on your sheet, the key message is, be sure your sin will find you out. Got Saul. It's the heart of the book. It gets David right in the middle. So no matter where you are in life, everybody is accountable to God everybody's account, every one of us, the Bible says, shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 10. And uh, trust God's accounting. Sometimes, you ever heard the story of the atheist? You've heard the story, right? He always harvested on Sunday, and he mocked people because he got this great crop in the fall, and he said, oh, I did it on Sunday, where's your God now? And one preacher apparently said, uh, God doesn't settle his debts in October. So like the Lord, well, he's going to settle things. So the Bible says sometimes he settles them in this life a little bit, but rest assured, he's going to settle them at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to give an account. And uh, Jesus Christ is pictured as David's Lord in this book. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said unto my Lord, right? David wrote that. Sit thou on my, right? Uh, oh my goodness, I got to read it. <laughs> my goodness, I feel like I'm having a senior moment. Psalm 110, verse 1. Let's, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my footstool. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to... I am have Somebody help me. Let me... Right side, yeah, I know. I know it's the footstool. I got to get... Right? Help me. I'm dying out here. I'm drying up out here. You're just all looking at me like, He doesn't know every verse? No. The Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make that enemy's footstool. I, I had it, but I was like... had a moment of uh, fear, brethren. Forgive me. All right, so... That's who he is. David's Lord is Jesus Christ. Now, 1 Kings 15.5 is where I want to start. Because 1 Kings 15.5 is how the Lord kind of sums up the whole ministry and the whole life of David. Look at this. 1 Kings 15.5. The Lord says... Nevertheless, for David's sake did the Lord, um, sorry, five, because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's a pretty good testimony. I don't know if the Lord would be able to say that about you. He loved me. He did what was right. Yeah, he made that big blemish. He did that boo-boo. And God kind of pointed at that boo-boo, that mistake, that grievous sin, I should say, as the one real blemish and blight upon David's character. And for that reason, the fact that God points out the incident with Uriah as the like, defining sin of David's life, that's kind of how the book is laid out, as you notice on your sheet. Chapters 1 to 10 is David before Uriah. Chapters 11 to 12, David against Uriah, his sin and his plot to cover it up. And then chapters 13 to 24, David after Uriah. Everything seems to revolve around that incident with Uriah. So, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And let's jump into it, and I've just got a few. We're going to just try to get through the first ten chapters, and I'm not going to look at every chapter, but I want to just touch on some of the Bible pictures and principles that are in the book of 2 Samuel while we walk through it now. And here's the first principle in chapter number one, or the first picture. Very important. If you're not careful, the flesh will take your crown. That's our first real principle. Lesson from the book of 2 Samuel. If you're not careful, the flesh will take your crown. Let's jump into verse 2 of chapter 1 and take it from there. You with me? Say amen. 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 Great. It It came even to pass on the third day that, Behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, And lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me. And I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me. For anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him, slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Now, chapter 1 of Second Samuel brings up what some people like to call a contradiction in your Bible, a supposed problem text with your Bible. How did King Saul actually die? Was it suicide or was it murder? Well, did he kill himself or did the Amalekite kill him? Because if you look back at 1 Kings chapter 31, just look maybe across the page to the left, 1 Kings 31 verse 4, then said Saul unto his armor bearer, draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me, but his armor bearer would not, for he was so afraid, therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. So in 1 Kings 31, we talked about it last week, there's the suicide of Saul, one of the seven suicides in the Bible, and he falls upon his sword, and you think he's dead. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 1, he's leaning upon his spear and asking Amalekite to kill him. And some people say, see, 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 the Bible has contradictions in it. No, 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 no contradictions. Look at verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead... Doesn't say that Saul was dead. The armor bearer thought that Saul was dead, so he killed himself. But apparently Saul couldn't even kill himself, right? Saul tried, but then his life was still in him, and he's sitting there leaning upon his, his spear after he tried to kill himself with a sword and failed. And an Amalekite rolls up and finishes him off. That's how it all goes together. There's no contradiction. Now look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. And here's how you know the Amalekite had to finish him off. Because do you remember way back in 1 Kings? What was Saul told to do with the Amalekites? Smite them. Utterly destroy them. And what did we say that Saul did with the Amalekites? I think it was last week. He spared them. He spared the best of them. So what happens in 2 Samuel 1.10? If you don't destroy the flesh, you lose your crown. If you don't take care of that flesh... You don't take care of this Adamic nature that's still full of sin and lusts and desires. You kind of try to keep some of it hanging around like Saul did. Guess what? That same Amalekite who typifies the flesh, he's going to come and he's going to steal your crown. That's a great, great lesson that the whole book opens up with, right? That if you won't obey God and put down the flesh, you'll lose your crown. You lose your reward to reign. Listen, the Lord didn't tell you to do a lot of stuff. First thing he told the children of Israel to do after they got delivered by the blood of the Lamb. You know what the first word was to them from their lessons in Exodus? Sanctify. Clean yourself up. You know what he says in First Thessalonians, that young church? This is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. He said, what does God want me to do with my life? Get the sin out of your life. You're going to do that till the Lord calls you home. That's a lifelong ministry. You know, once you deal with the big ones, like I don't want to beat my neighbor up anymore and I'm not stealing anymore, those are the easy ones, then you got to work on the hard ones, like pride, lust, envy, right? Uh, Greed, like some of those things. Hatred towards your brother. Once you finish the big ones and you stop, you know, robbing the 7-Eleven and you stop beating up the guy that tried to stop you robbing the 7-Eleven, then you can work on the secret sins, The ones that only you and God see. And uh, that's a lifelong vocation, gentlemen and ladies. That's something to work on. Get holy. Be holy for I am holy. Because God says, if you don't put down that flesh, doesn't mean you're sinlessly perfect, but if you're not putting that thing down every day, getting up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, you're not going to get what you want today, flesh. I'm not giving in to you today. I'm going to fight you. You're going to lose your crown. And the Lord doesn't want you to lose your crown. And the first chapter of the book of David, who's supposed to picture your life, starts with an Amalekite stealing Saul's crown. God's like, hello, McFly, are you getting it? Are you seeing it? If you don't take care of that flesh and you leave those Amalekites hanging around, that sucker's going to find you at your weak spot and take your crown. And the Lord doesn't want that for you. Let's go to chapter 2. Quiet. (laughs) 2 Samuel chapter 2. All right, second principle or picture. If you're going to serve God, you've got to depend on God. If you're going to serve God and live for God, you've got to depend on God. And I don't say that, and we don't say that as a theory. It's got to be a practice. It's got to be something where you can actually almost feel yourself letting those burdens go in the Lord's hands. And it takes time to do that. Because you say, yeah, I trust God, I trust God, while well, you're carrying everything yourself. But you've got to get to a place, if you're really going to serve God, where you just are willing to drop some things, trust some things, and cast thy burden on the Lord, commit thy way unto the Lord, which means you've got to let it go. You can't commit it if you're always going like this with it, right? If I hand Mario a piece of paper, and I say, "Here, man, this is for you, and he walks away, and my hand's still on it, and I'm like, I just want to hold it a little longer. I just want to... I just want to feel it a little bit. I just want to look at it a little bit. I just want to hold it up a little bit. No, when I commit it to you, i got to let it go. And uh, look at 2 Samuel 2. Look at verse 1. And I know that's hard sometimes, brethren. I know that's hard sometimes. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and it came to pass after this, this, after all this stuff with Saul and uh, all this stuff going on in the previous chapter. Uh, and it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying... Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. David went thither, and his two wives also, and Hinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail Nabal's wife the Carmelite, and his men that were with him, did David bring up every man with his household. And they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh Gilead were they that buried Saul. I want you to notice before David, listen, folks, before David even assumes the throne, he's seeking the Lord. That's a great message. That's the first message we really see in David's life as he's getting ready to be king. The first thing he's doing is seeking the Lord Lord, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go here? Should I make that call? Should I visit this person? Should I go this way or should I go that way? Are you going to bring somebody today, Lord? Should I talk to that one? Should I talk to this one? Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I wear this today? Do I wear that today? You know what? You've got to get a habit. When you start your day, you should be like, Lord, where am I going today, Lord? What do you want from me today, Lord? We I know what happens. The alarm goes off and boom, you're off to the races. But if you've got to get up a little earlier, get up a little earlier to get your heart right with God. I think it was Hudson Taylor said, do not have your concert first. And then tune your instruments, right? Get your heart in tune first. And you know what? Your concert might be a lot sweeter, sweeter sounding that day. And uh, David, before he's king, before he's anointed, before he goes left or right, he says, Lord, where do I go? Hebron. Okay. And the Lord answered him. And uh, go to Psalm 25. And this is a lesson I we all got to learn, right? Because we all got to learn this. I got to learn this too. Psalm 25. I know we think of faith, we think of Abraham, we think of Daniel, but David, man, David talked a lot about trust in the Lord. And I know David was up and down. Right. You read the Psalms. He's up here. Then he's down here. Then he's up here again. He's down here. And that's the heart of your Bible. You know why? Because that's where we live. <laughs> right. Tomorrow you might be like this. You witnessed to five people. 17 got saved. You got four called to preach. And you're just like, wow, everything's going amazingly. And then Saturday, boom, it could bottom out. So I'm like, "Wow, well, God, where are you? That, that's life. That's how David was. That's so you don't feel like you're crazy when it happens to you. Amen? But David was a lot about trusting God. Look at Psalm 25. We, uh, we used to sing this psalm back in Staten Island. we got to bring it back. We're working on it. It's a slow process. Uh, but uh, we're working on it. Psalm 25, unto thee, O Lord. Eli and I sang it in Hebrew, right? Didn't we do this one? Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Oh my God. I trust in thee, let me not be ashamed, let not my enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Do you know that if you commit something to God, you're never gonna be ashamed? You trust God with something, you're never gonna come out on the short end of the stick. You're never gonna be like, oh. You know, you take our beloved King James Bible. We are just dumb enough to believe that God could preserve a book. Like he could preserve you. I don't think at the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord is gonna be like, You thought I could preserve my words? You thought I was that powerful? I don't think anybody's going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. You may say, Lord, my family's a train wreck, but Lord, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. And the, the, the train is coming off the rails, and they're like, how come you're not freaking out? I've given it to the Lord. You know what? I think when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, I don't think you're going to be ashamed. Oh, God's going to be like, you really should have done some more of it yourself and stopped talking to me about it. No, I don't think so. Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Hey. And sometimes there's a time to act, but David didn't act until God said, go this way. <laughs> David made sure he checked in with the Lord before he checked in with anybody else, right? I'm sure it'd have been easy for him to just be like, hey, Joab, uh, you know, uh, Zeruiah, whatever these guy's name, or Joshua, Beam, you know, talking, where should he go? What do you think? What looks, I'm sure they all had opinions. Let's go this way. Let's go that way. He said, you know, I need to ask God, where should I go? Amen. Look at Psalm 37. So David, he learned that lesson, man. He learned to trust God when he was on the run. He learned to trust God when Saul was hounding him. So many of the Psalms are about David being hounded by Saul. David in a cave where you see David at his lowest reaching out to God and trying to find a rock to to stand on. And in Psalm 37, look at verse number 7. Look what, uh, David not only learned the lesson himself, but he learned it enough to tell some other people about it. Psalm 37, uh, 3. This is a great psalm. What a great psalm. Trust in the Lord and do good. (laughs) Uh, So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily shalt thou be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto uh, the Lord trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy righteousness as the, do- the noonday. rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass he's saying depend on God you know what didn't depend on God his predecessor Saul Saul's going to turn to the witch at Endor. Saul's going to turn to himself. Saul did not want to turn to the right guys. Only when it was too late, he tried to turn to God, and it was just a token turn. David's like, guys, rest in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Commit thy way unto the Lord. And David's whole reign, kingship, ascension to the throne, begins with a prayer. Amen. Begins with him seeking God. Because if you're going to serve God, you've got to depend on God. Go go back to 2 Samuel, chapter 3. Here's our third picture, or our third principle. And I touched on this last week because I got ahead of myself, so I'm going to touch on it again today so I could show you the verses. All right, chapter 3. Here's the big lesson we take out of chapter 3. God's translation always makes things better. God's translation always makes things better. Now, the world is going to always say to you, right, Something is always lost in translation, right? Amen? Just nod and smile. Have you heard that right? Right? It's like the game of telephone, right? You say something to this person. I whisper in this person's ear. It goes around the room. I tell this person, I like cheese pizza. It comes out. The rhinoceros is blue all the way over here because it keeps get. I have no idea where that came from, but anyway, it just keeps getting twisted and turned and something's always lost. And your scholars will tell you that you need the originals. You need the, quote, oldest and most reliable manuscripts if you're really going to understand what God said. Uh, Too bad the oldest ones are probably the ones that are the most polluted and corrupted, but we're not going to go there. Go to 2 Samuel 3. Let's just see what God says about translation. I said it last week. The word is only used in three instances, and each one God is doing something where he makes something that was original much better. The first one is in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 9. Abner is speaking. Abner was a, was a, was a captain of Saul's army, and he's, gonna, he's upset with Saul's son, and he's like, you know what? The kingdom is going to David. And he says this in frustration in verse 9. So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him. To translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah. Question number one, you could answer out loud. Did the kingdom get better or worse under David? Amen. Amen. Okay, you know a little bit about the Bible. All right. Let's go to Colossians chapter one, the second instance of translation in your Bible. Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. I got to get there too. Colossians one. Colossians 1, verse 13. This is a great verse, Colossians 1, 13. Colossians 1, 13. Ready? Speaking about what God did for us, you can give thanks in verse 12. And he says, God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Question number two, did your spiritual condition get better or worse after God saved you? Better. Better. I was a little weak. Better or worse? Better. Right? You were held by the power of darkness. That's not an abstract thing, people. Those are the forces of evil that form a network around this globe. They are orchestrating things. They are moving kings. They are helping raise up kings with God's discretion and God's allowance and that power held you bound. You were part of that evil kingdom. You were part of that wicked problem and you were part of that system and you were going to burn and perish when Jesus Christ came back at his second coming to topple those powers and principalities. You know what Jesus Christ did? He liberated you he freed you and he took you out of those powers and out of that evil army and out of that evil system and translated you into the benevolent gracious kingdom of his dear son a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the holy ghost that's the kingdom he made you a part of yes i'll say it for all of us like you said it it got much better praise jesus it got better let's keep going hebrews chapter 11 Last, last mention of translated or translation or translate. Hebrews 11, verse 5. So it got better with Saul to David. It got better with, uh, with Satan to Christ and it got better here. Hebrews eleven five 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, picture of the church, and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation... He had this testimony that he pleased God. He's speaking back of Genesis chapter 5 when God just took Enoch home and took Enoch from this earth and he was not for God had taken him and translated him. Question, did things get better or worse after God translated Enoch? (laughs) Are things going to get better or worse for you when God translates you and takes you like Enoch off this earth? You know why Enoch pictures the church, right? He's the only person in the Bible that never died only person in the Bible that never died is Enoch. He pictures those of us that are going to be here when Jesus Christ comes back that are never going to see death. Amen. And we're going to go from this hell hole to heaven's Amen. shores. Amen? Amen. It's going to be a lot better. So when I look at my beloved King James Bible, And they say, well, that's not the Bible, that's just a translation. I lovingly say back to them, if God is the one behind the translating, then it always gets better. Amen? Amen? you got to find the one that's got God behind it. And I've been doing some studying, some listening, I'm like ready to explode, just refreshing and reminding myself all the stuff about this King James Bible. You know those people, you know the way this beloved book was put together is an absolute miracle? You know those men... That put that, that sat on those translation committees at Oxford and Cambridge, and I think, maybe Westminster, if I get the Third house there were 54 men, ended up being 48, because six had a dropout for sickness or disease. Those 48 men were the most finest, spiritual, learned men the world has ever seen. Lancelot Andrews is like one of my favorite guys, Lancelot Andrews, they said spoke 20 to 30 languages when he died. Prayed for five hours a day. Those are the people that handled the scriptures with fear and trembling. It was a miracle. You know the Joe Schmoes that are sitting on revision committees now? Atheists, lesbians, Christ deniers, Unitarians, and people that don't even believe in God. They're the academics that are sitting, handling the Word of God deceitfully today. If God is the one behind the translating, you know it's going to get better, even better than the originals. Amen? So, you just got to find the translation that God's behind. Let's go to 2 Samuel. I'll come off that soapbox just for a little while. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And you know why God did it that way? You know why God? It's a matter of faith. I can't convince, I can lay out all the evidence for why the King James Bible is the preserved word of God. But like you had to trust Jesus Christ by faith, at some point you've got to have enough faith to say, you know what, Lord, if you could save me, you could keep a book. <laughs> If you create those stars out there that hang in that orbit and don't collide and, you know, the perfect tilt to the earth and all this stuff to, to make life possible, you've got to have the same faith to say, wow, Lord, you can keep some words. Amen? It's not a matter of man. It's not a matter of scholarship. It's a matter of God's integrity and God's promise. And God did it that way because without faith it is impossible to please Him. And He's just looking for people that are, quote, unquote, dumb enough to think God is able to do it. I know none of you are dumb, but I say that facetiously. I say that sarcastically because God is just looking for people. And hey, the people that sat on the King James Translation Committee were no dummies. They were no dummies at all. Lancelot Andrews, his idea of a vacation was, I'm going to go to another country and learn their language. And they would be able to speak it better than you and I speak English. And uh, it's just amazing, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Um, 2 Samuel chapter. Five. Second, another lesson another principle bible's full of principles you got to read the bible for information but like dl moody said the bible was not given for our information but for our transformation so look for the principles right Find what are the things i'm supposed to see in this lord second samuel five here's the principle if you're going to rule you must have the heart of a shepherd if you're going to rule Have any type of authority or leadership, whether it's in your home, the church, the job, wherever it is. You've got to have the heart of a shepherd. Look at 2 Samuel 5, verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that lettest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt... Feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So David, so all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King and King David made a league with them in Hebron, and there they anointed the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. That's what I want to stop. Amen. I want you to notice in verse two that this is the first time in your Bible that a ruler is likened to a shepherd that's supposed to feed his people. What is that? You're going to feed the people? What is that about? Because David was a shepherd. And just became, because he became a king, he was never supposed to lose the heart of a shepherd that was supposed to feed the sheep and the people God put unto him. And if you're going to rule, you got to have the heart of a shepherd. Now, what did Jesus Christ show up? Jesus Christ shows up, the son of David, amen? What does he say in John 10? I am the good Shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? I shall not lack. And the Lord man is so angry. And I'm just going to say the word angry. The Lord is angry with any leader, especially in his home or in his church. He's angry with any leader that is not the shepherd that he should be. as putting himself ahead of the flock and is not feeding the people the way he should be feeding the people. Let me show you some verses. Go to Jeremiah chapter 50. Do you ever wonder... I'm just going to stop right there. Do you ever wonder... <laughs> no, not who wrote the book of love. No, no, no. Did you ever wonder um, why, the, why the leaders of Israel were so nervous when the Messiah showed up? Chapter 50, yeah. Isn't that strange? The Messiah shows up and the leaders of Israel are like, oh uh-oh, <laughs> you know they're nervous they're scared and there's lots of reason why they were scared but you want to know why one reason they were scared was one of many perhaps they knew the prophecies in the old testament that the lord was going to show up and rebuke the pastors and the shepherds of israel he was going to come and he had a bone to pick with them because they weren't feeding the people they were feeding themselves they were taking it for themselves Right. If you look at Jeremiah 50, verse 6, I'm going to show you just two verses. There are many I could show you. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, the Bible says, the Lord is speaking, He says, My people have been lost sheep. Right? Israel. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. The shepherds of Israel... The leaders, the ones who are supposed to be guiding them in the way of peace, they're the ones that are turning the children of Israel astray. So when Isaiah 53 writes, Oh, we like sheep have gone astray, guess what? The leaders are partly to blame for that astray. You know, what? when I see something, when you see something in your family or someone's family, nine times out of ten, it's some parent's fault. They probably did something to turn them aside. Not every time. I know that kids got a will and they go wayward, but a lot of times the mistakes that drive you crazy in your kids might have been something that you didn't show them how to fix. Sometimes, not saying all the time. I know there's a million exceptions to that rule, but there's a reason why the Bible says train them up in the way they should go. A lot of parents just think that iPads are going to raise them, and YouTube's going to raise them, and and you know Amazon Prime is going to raise them, and Netflix Kids is going to raise them. If that's who's raising your kids. God have mercy on your soul because they are pumping like garbage in their brain all those hours. God says you're supposed to feed them, lead them. And Israel was getting nothing. The people were getting scraps. And God says, look at you. You turned my people astray. Go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. Let me show you just one more on this. There's many I could say on this, but Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Here's another one. This is even sharper. Right? Ezekiel 34.1 And the word of the Lord came unto me saying Ready? Watch this. Here it is. Here's why their knees knocked a little bit when Jesus showed up. 34.2 Son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds Feed the flocks. And if you want to read the rest of that chapter sometime, the Lord just lays it on the leaders and lays it on the shepherds and says, you guys are miserable examples of leaders. They were too busy feeding themselves. Go to First Peter chapter 5 in your New Testament. Is that making sense? First Peter chapter 5, verse number 1. First Peter 5. You might just be the leader at your job. You might be the leader in your home. You might have some authority in the church, maybe over a ministry or you're a deacon or a pastor or an elder of some kind. All right? guess what? God's looking to you to put the flock first and feed them and lead them and keep them from going astray. Here's God's example of what a good leader should be. 1 Peter 5. The elders which are among you, I exhort. So he's challenging us. Who am also an elder. So Peter's up in years at this point. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God. That's the command. Hey, isn't that what Jesus told Peter when he found them on the shore? Mm-hmm. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Mm-hmm. Do you love me? Yeah, feed my lambs. You love me? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Right? And now he got it. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint. Don't grab it by the nose as much as you want to, but willingly, not for filthy lucre. Don't do it for money. Don't do it just because somebody's forcing you to do it, but of a ready mind. Be willing. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, right? Don't be uh. Don't be too domineering. Don't be too controlling. Don't micromanage. All right. Give people room to breathe but being in samples to the flock. You be the model. You be the example. You be the person they could look to. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. In the God good. You know what the chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, he wants to reward godly shepherding. He said, I was a good shepherd to you. I'm just looking to reward some shepherds down here. So don't answer these out loud. But if there's a husband or a dad under the sound of my voice, hey, are you giving your life to feed your flock? A grandpa, a grandma, an aunt, an uncle, somebody that you have some level of influence? Are you seeing that as a ministry? Or you need somebody to roll out the red carpet and give you a title? Or are you just saying, you know what? This is my little circle. I'm going to be a good steward of this. I'm going to be a good leader here. Do my best. And how about you? Preach to myself. I'm preaching this to myself. Pastor, elder, deacon, older Christian. Are you stuffing your face? Are you putting God's people first? That's the challenge that God puts in the book of 2 Samuel right there through David. Now go back to 2 Samuel 6. we just got a few left, and then we'll be done very quickly here. 2 Samuel 6. You know, when I write these things down, I think they're going to go so much faster, and then I start running my big fat mouth, and it just keeps on keeping on. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 uh, Samuel, but I'll just cut it where i got to cut it. 2 Samuel 6. We see two great principles in 2 Samuel 6. Number one, God's work has got to be done God's way. God's work has got to be done God's way. Look at 2 Samuel 6, let's look at verse 1. Now we know the Ark of God had been stolen, right? Way back in 1 Samuel, the Philistines came and they had taken the Ark of God and uh, they had had it for for a while now and David wants to bring it back. And 2 Samuel 6, 1, and David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from uh, Bailey of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. So David wants to bring the ark of the God back. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good Good thing. That's a good want. That's a good thing to want. That's a good desire. Let's read verse 3. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart. Uh Uh-oh. "...and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart." And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord in all manner of instruments, made of firwood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Man, having a good old time. And when they came to nation's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. They hit a pothole, the thing wobbled, and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error, big word, error. And there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David puts the ark of God on a cart. He had the right want, but he did it the wrong way. Now, if you remember from our studies, I think I mentioned it way back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, that's how the Philistines transported the Ark of God. They learned about the Ark on a cart from the Philistines, from the enemy. And you can't serve God with the enemy's tactics. No matter how noble your desire is to get people saved or to build a good church, you can't drive it with the enemy's tactics. God doesn't want it that way. And can I tell you this as a great principle to remember? The Lord is as concerned about the means as He is about the ends. The ends don't justify the means with God. He's as concerned about the methodology as he is about the results. He wants you to do it his way. Listen, I know how we could get a gospel track in every house in town. we just got to get ourselves some good rocks. I'll go to the place on 36. I'll buy some river rocks. We'll put some rubber bands. We'll tie a track to the rock and we'll just go around. Eli will drive us and we'll whip them through everybody's windows. They'll get in everybody's house, and I guarantee you those tracks will get picked up in red if I throw it through the window with a rock. But that's the wrong way to do it. That's a good exaggeration, but it's just as wrong to build a church by leaning on the cart of corporate ideas Of convenience, of man's imaginations, even though you got good intentions, it's not as crazy as throwing a rock through a window. There's plenty of things to go on in churches to bring them in and try to get them titillated that are just as silly to God as throwing a rock through a window. That's why, total disclosure, that's why we don't do bake sales, we don't do car washes. To support the work of God, no, those aren't any evil. I know some churches do those things, but you know it's supposed to come from us, right? We're supposed to put a sacrifice and bring the sacrifices. You know how they built the ark in the Old Testament? They brought a sacrifice. They brought up their own stuff, and it was built. And if you want to see God's work built, God wants to see is it coming from something you've sacrificed and given it, whether it's time or talent or resources. You can't just get a corporate sponsor. Amen? That's not how it works. And same thing at the fairs. We don't try marketing gimmicks or giveaways to draw people to Jesus Christ. That's not how we're doing it. We're going to preach the Bible. We're going to pray. We're going to hold forth the word of life. And God's going to bring the people that want the truth. We made a decision, I've said it before, I'll say it again. At these fairs, I'm not giving away candy, I'm not blowing up balloons, I don't hate you if you did that, but I've just resolved in my heart, I know my wicked flesh, I know I could think of a million gimmicks to try to get people to stop at the booth, and I'm not saying they're all evil, but we want to be there for one reason. The word of God and the souls of men. That's it. The only reason we're there. That's how God says build the church. Just do it my way. And if you see verse number six, if you don't esteem the... You say, why did Uzzah touch that? Wasn't Uzzah doing a good thing? No, he wasn't. He didn't esteem the Word of God, so he didn't esteem the work of God. If you esteem the Word of God, you're going to esteem the work of God. You know what I'm very jealous over? This local church. I, I am. You say, well, we're big or small or sideways. I don't care what size we are, but the local church is the apple of God's eye right now. That's how God works. That's how God's move. And when people just flippantly step in, step out, come, don't come, try to, you know, minister through other ministries, parachurch ministries, stuff they find online, you know what? That. Yeah, it it grieves me a little bit because God says, you know where I'm working right now? I'm working through the church. I'm working in the church. Unto Christ, unto God be glory in the church throughout all ages, right? Ephesians chapter 3. He's working through the local church. That little puny vehicle that the world despises is where God works right now and where God dwells right now and where God ministers right now. So you know what? If I'm going to give some of my money, I'm going to... Give it to the local church. If I'm going to give some of my time, I'm not going to volunteer down the road. I'm going to try to spend some time serving in the local church if I want those works to count. Because this is where God's working. That's where He's working. But how many people like Uzzah? You know people are trying to do? They're trying to help God out. God, I know you need stuff, so I'm going to help you out a little bit. Let me just change this version here make it easier to read, you know, that way people could read it a little better, even though they don't. It doesn't make it easier, it makes it harder, right? Read a new King James Version and see how hard it is to read. The vocabulary is so much harder than a King James Bible. You know, hey God, God, I know you need some people to come to church, so we're going to give away hot dogs, we're going to give away balloons, we know you need souls to get saved, so we're going to, you know, play music that's really contemporary, that sounds like the garbage on their radio, so they'll feel like it's relevant, like it's like them, and when they come in, they'll feel comfortable. You know what, you should feel uncomfortable in church? I bet if you stood next to Jehovah God, you'd feel a little uncomfortable, wouldn't you? If you knew Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow, that should make your stomach do a little bit of flip-flop in your stomach. I know I want to see Him, but also, it's God, right? So, I mean, when the Word of God is preached, it should stick you a little bit. It should, oh man, Lord, that's a, yeah, help me with that, Lord. It should warm your heart, but it also should like shake you out of your lethargy a little bit, you know, and kind of like move you a little bit. It shouldn't just be like, Oh, that was a lovely song, you know. That's what they told Ezekiel. That's a lovely song. I like how you did that. You alliterated your points. That was pretty. That was nice. I'll be back next week. You know, that's great, you know. No, he says, you should be like, oh, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? I know it's also bad about the uh, the cart. You know the ministry, the, the ark was supposed to be born on staves. That means there's a burden you're supposed to bear when you serve God. You can't shortcut it. You know what Pastor Dean told me a long time ago when he said, Are you gonna go out to Jersey and try to do it God's way? He said, You know, you know what he said? He goes, brother, he goes, it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be long and it's gonna be slow. He said if you're going to try to build people one at a time in this Laodicean age, it's going to be slow going, brother. It's going to be slow going. It's going to be, and he got real emphatic, like he gets emphatic. He says, it's going to be hard, and that smile, and it's going to be slow, and it's going to be long. <laughs> and he <you> know, <laughs> laughed a little bit and smiled. And Pastor Dean, you know I love you if you ever listen to this. And all you people of the First Bible, Staten Island, don't you dare say I was making fun of him imitating <laughs> him. Only Keith Miguel does that. All right? So anyway. All right, I had to get my way. So there are no shortcuts in serving Jesus Christ. Yeah. You're going to have to go through things. You're going to have to bear those burdens and learn how to trust God. There's no shortcuts. Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. Okay. We just got to do it God's way. And then let's go to chapter 6. We're still in chapter 6. Let's we'll go down to verse 12. Here's the next one. I'm going to try to squeeze these last couple ones in. The next principle I see right here is you're only hurting yourself when you tear someone else down you're only hurting yourself when you tear someone else down echo 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 Look at verse 12. So now David gets it right, verse 12. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bare the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. So David makes things right and carries the ark into the city the right way, the way it's prescribed in, in, in the Old Testament. And in verse number 14, here's what happens. And David danced. That's not shaking his moneymaker. That's leaping and jumping. That's biblical dancing. Is about leaping and jumping and joy. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with the linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. And can I tell you, when you start doing God's work, God's way, there is reason to rejoice. Man, that person got saved. Man, it just felt so good to go out street preaching today. Man, we gave out those tracts. He just comes back rejoicing and leaping and praising God. And look what happens in verse number 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. That's one of his wives. And isn't it? He's excited. He's thrilled. Sometimes those closest to us will be the most envious of us. Most envious of us. They'll be the ones to throw the wet blanket on our joy. They'll be the ones to take our legs out from underneath us when we just climb the mountaintop. They'll be the ones to kind of throw that wet blanket on your, your, your praise party. Got to be very careful. Doesn't James write, Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Yep. Your spirit is an envious spirit. Got to watch that man. I mean, your flesh. It's envious. It's just, think about it. The devil's pride caused him to envy God. That pride and envy are like first cousins or something, man. They're real close. You say, what did the devil fall from? I know the Bible says pride, but he wanted what God had and he wanted God's position and God didn't give it to him. That's the definition of envy. Wanting something that God isn't giving you is envy. And he envied and he wanted because of his pride and guess what the flesh's pride will cause you to envy others right. it happened right there in the passage right. now look at chapter uh, verse 20 verse 20 there I am 20 then david returned to bless his household oh he's coming home honey i'm home and michael the daughter of Saul came out to meet david and said i bet you were just sitting there with your arms crossed tapping the counter You know, he walked in, probably opened the fridge, because that's what every guy does when he comes home first. Came home, opened the fridge, grabbed a Gatorade, wanted to tell his wife how great street preaching was, how exciting it was, how wonderful the ministry was, or the mission was, or church was, or something he found in the Bible, and he's just praising God, and she just says, hmm, how glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. I bet she was probably looking at her nails, filing them. Yeah, you really look good today, David. Good job, honey. Nice. You know, didn't take out the garbage. You know, didn't put the seat down. (laughs) And She's just, guys, I got your back, guys. You owe me one. You guys owe me one, all right? You owe me one. Ladies, I'll get you this. I'll get you later on some of it. But you know what? just throwing a wet blanket. And, and David said unto Michael, now David doesn't give, he just gives it right back. He says, it was before the Lord, which, now look at how he sticks her here. It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord and I will yet be more vile than thus. I will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be hid in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. What's the lesson? When you allow envy to tear another believer down, you hurt yourself. Michael got judged by God for throwing a wet blanket on, on David's praise. Isn't that interesting? Romans twelve twelve, rejoice with them that do rejoice. Hey, if you're excited about something you found in the Bible, get excited with that brother. You excited with that sister because she just did something to bless God? She's excited about a prayer getting answered? Get excited with that sister. Amen? Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Michael should have praised God. It was her husband. Praised God, David, with God, right? He should have come home, oh honey, what? oh yeah, she should have put down the whatever, the, the thing and just put down the phone and just said, yo, tell me about it. Even if she had to fake it a little bit, tell me about it. But that's not what she was. She was a rotten woman. Rotten woman that just was Mm, 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 jabbing them. Didn't take the garbage out. Didn't do this. Didn't do that. Mm, 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 mm. You want to go out and praise God like a fool? Don't be a fool. I don't care. You can be a fool, right? Don't yeah, be like one of those street preachers and one of those fanatics, huh? You know this has got to be done. The lawn's not mowed, right? Just, just taking them out, right? Should have praised with them, right? Yeah. Guys, mow the lawn, take the garbage out, put the seat down, do all those things, <laughs> all right? Make it easy for us. First Thessalonians five nineteen. Quench not. The Spirit. That's one of two things you're supposed to not do with the Holy Spirit. You're not supposed to grieve Him, Ephesians 4, and you're not supposed to quench Him. You're not supposed to throw a wet blanket on His work. You're not supposed to thwart or hinder what He's doing, or a fire He might be starting in somebody else's life. What did they say of Jesus Christ when He came in Matthew 12? Smoking flax shall He not quench. Jesus Christ didn't put fires out when He saw a fire starting. He wasn't putting it out. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Quench not the Spirit. Jesus Christ didn't quench smoking flax. Neither are you supposed to put the fire out in somebody else's life. So what spirit are ye of when you despise a brother's praise and try to quench his fire? What spirit is that? That ain't the Holy Spirit. That's not Christ's Spirit. That's another spirit. That's your spirit. That's a spirit that lusteth to envy. And if you throw a wet blanket on the fire in another saint, don't expect any fruit yourself. Because Michael didn't get any fruit. No children after that. No fruit because she despised a brother's praise and put the fire out. Try to. Real quick, chapter 7. Chapter 7. Look at verse number 18. I'm going to squeeze this in. I got need 10 minutes. Uh, chapter 7. Two more principles, really fast. This one's super fast. Chapter 7, sometimes you need to sit down. That's the principle. Sometimes you need to sit down. Sometimes you need to stop and count your blessings. Now David, all the way, the whole, wow, it was loud. The whole, uh, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 17. Chapters 1 to 17, it's good, I just spoke into it too close. 1 to 17, the Lord has just made a covenant with David. He's just made the Davidic covenant with David. David's like, I want to build God a temple. And God starts laying this whole thing about how his seed is going to build a temple and sit on that throne forever. If you look at verse number 12 of chapter 7, God says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And right here in this chapter is the establishment of the Davidic Covenant. You read about it in Psalm 89. You want to write a little cross-reference in your Bible? Psalm 89 is God laying out this promise, this covenant with David, that of his seed, somebody who's going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. You know what David does in verse 18? David stops. He takes a seat, and he just rehearses all the things that God has done for him to remember how great God is. And sometimes, guys... We work, we labor, we do stuff, but sometimes you just got to stop and have yourself a good praising fest. Go take a walk out in a field somewhere and just start thanking God for stuff. Just stop the music, stop the work, stop everything and just have a seat before the Lord and praise God. David says in verse 18, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? You know what I got written in my Bible right next to that verse? C.J. is clear, ten, eighteen, twenty-one. 21. Because that's what I said Lord. I just sat down. I said, Lord, who am I that you would take care of my house, that you'd have mercy on my house? Verse 19, and this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? No, God doesn't do that for everybody, but you did that for me, God. Amen. And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. You know what an idiot I am. For thy word's sake, not because of me, for thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things. You didn't do these great things to me, God, because I'm so special, but because you're so special. And know what his conclusion is when he stops and just thanks God a little bit? Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. For there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Sometimes you just got to stop, count your blessings, and remember God's greatness. Be good for you, be good for me, be good for us. Just stop and say, Lord, you saved my soul. You gave me hope. You did this for me. You did that for me. You directed me here. You directed me there. Lord, I can't believe you did these things for me. You didn't have to, but wow, Lord, you really are something would be good to do. Just look up to heaven tonight and say, before you go to bed tonight, Lord, I love you today. Thank you for doing all this stuff for me today. Thank you for delivering me to this nice bed tonight. The Lord, I don't deserve it, but praise God for you. It would be good for you to have a seat and just Amen. thank the Lord a little more than we do right now. And finally, chapter 9. I'm going to skip chapter 8. There's really not much to kind of touch on in chapter 8. I'm sure there's something you could find. But chapter 9, I'll stop here. I think it's good to end on this one. Chapter 9 is a great picture of the sinner and the Savior. Mephibosheth and David. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'll give you something to thank God about right here. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that it may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? See, David wants to show kindness to the house of Saul because of Jonathan. You know what that's a great picture of? The Father in heaven having mercy on the sinner because of Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. So verse number two, and there was of the house of Saul, a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called unto him, the king said unto him, art thou Ziba? And he said, thy servant is he. And the king said, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan had yet a son, which is lame on his feet. Please notice that in verse number one, David wants to show kindness to the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. In verse number two and three, David asks the servant, he seeks out the servant to find the Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast. The Holy Spirit is pictured by the servant. You know what God does when he's looking for a sinner? God sends his Holy Spirit to draw the sinner to show the kindness of God unto him. You want to see these things about Mephibosheth? Number one about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, There I go again. In verse number three, Mephibosheth is of the house of Saul. He's an enemy of David. He's in the wrong family. That pictures you as a sinner. In the wrong family. The house of the enemy, of your father the devil, right? A sinner, lost. You know what else is interesting about Mephibosheth? He was lame, he couldn't stand, he couldn't walk because of a prior fall. 2 Samuel 4.4 is your cross-reference. He fell when he was young, they dropped him when they were running, and his legs were so mangled he couldn't stand anymore. What is that picture? You, the sinner, you're in the wrong family, and you can't walk, you can't stand because of a fall that happened a long time ago. Adam's fall, we sinned all, the Puritans used to say right? Titus 3, I'm not going to turn, they want to write that down. The Bible says we ourselves also are sometimes foolish, right? Disobedient, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's you, Mephibosheth. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared. That's just what happened right there in that story. Now look at verse number 7 of 2nd Samuel. Look at this great message. So David finds Mephibosheth, and David said unto him, look at this message. Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread continually at my table. Glory to God, what a message. What a message from David. There's three parts of that message. And what a beautiful picture of the Savior's message to the sinner in David's message to Mephibosheth. Number one, what's the first thing? Fear not. He dispels the fear. You know Jesus Christ's whole ministry was bookmarked by the two little words, fear not. On the night of his birth, what did the angels declare? Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's at the beginning. they at the end of his life. Those ladies run up on the tomb. And there's somebody stand there again saying, fear not. I know whom ye seek. He is not here. He is not here, but he is risen. God's whole. You get to the book of Revelation. John sees him. What does Jesus say? Fear not, don't be afraid. That's the message of Jesus Christ to the sinner from cover to cover. Don't be afraid. That's salvation. Then what does he say next? I will restore. Then you get restoration. Jesus Christ doesn't just save you, the Bible says he'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He'll give you back the things you lost. He'll fix your life. He says, I'll restore you. I'll save you, fear not, and I'll restore you. Number two, and then number three, it just keeps getting better. He says, and thou shalt eat bread at my table. I'm going to save you. I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to have fellowship with you around my bread. Wow, that's quite a message. You see Mephibosheth's response? That should be our response. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God, who am I that you would even look in my direction and be so gracious? That's Mephibosheth's response. That should be the sinner's response. Verse number 9 Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. Please notice that the servant does everything now for Mephibosheth. And the servant pictures the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He equips you, empowers you, guides you, teaches you, leads you, helps you, takes your prayers before the throne of God. We need the Holy Spirit of God to do everything for us like He does right there in that passage. And specifically what the Holy Spirit is pictured doing there is bringing the food to Mephibosheth, preparing the food for him to eat at the table. And what did Jesus say the Holy Spirit was going to do in John 14? He shall teach you all things and watch the words in John 14 and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And what's the servant supposed to do in there? Bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. Perfect picture of the Holy Spirit. Bring in the word of God to the saved sinner. Verse 11. Keep going. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my lord, the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as the same way as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, that lost, lame loser, is given a new standing, literally and figuratively. He's got a new standing. He went from sinner to son, enemy to to son, estranged to a son. You know, when you got saved, your position changed, your condition. You went from sinner to son. I know we say I'm a sinner saved by grace, but God really says, you know what your position is now? You're a son of God now. You're a son of God now. That's your position. Don't let the world dull your title. You are a son of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's who you are now. That's what God says. I'm just a sinner, saved by God. I know we need to say that sometimes. We need that humility. But doctrinally, you're not a sinner anymore to God. You're a son. Very different. Verse 13 will end here. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. Notice that when he sat at that table, the table linens Probably covered the lame legs that looked all decrepit and weak and mangled. But you see how the Lord ends the chapter? He never wants you to forget that you were lame. See how the Lord sticks that in there? You're at the table, you're a king, and you were lame on both your feet. You couldn't stand without me. You were lost without me. I made you a king. You sit among princes. You're the aristocracy of heaven. But don't you forget one second, ma'am or sir, that without me, you would have split hell wide open. And I may cover your sin, and I won't let any people see it, because love covereth all sin. Right? And those linens at that table probably covered Mephibosheth's rotten, rickety legs. But he just wants you to remember that you were lame, and you had no standing, and Jesus Christ gave you All that He gave you. Great picture of the sinner and the Savior. Something to praise God about tonight. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you today, Lord. We thank you. We praise you, Lord, for this beautiful